You're listening to The After Session with Philip Lewis. I'm a therapist based in Washington, D.C., and I hope to provide my perspective on work done throughout the therapeutic process. Thanks for listening. My little sister is in the house. So. Hello, hello. <laughs> Last uh, couple of episodes, you heard from my oldest sister, now my little sister, to reflect on 2020. Yes. So back when I first started writing or so, um, and I was in between uh, active, some stints of active duty, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I was, but my sister was in them streets, okay? She was out here protesting. I'm so bad when you said in the streets. <laughs> Not like that. But she was out protesting. She was, she was um, a major integral part in um, bringing awareness and ultimately an arrest to the events that happened in Denver, Colorado. With Elijah McClain. With Elijah McClain. Um, and a couple days before um, a really big demonstration, she calls me and says, I need help writing something to give because there's a portion, there's a time when we finally meet or get to where we are done marching. I'm going to have to give a speech and um, I'm just really conflicted. Uh, I need something that's light and fluffy because <laughs> my sister knows that uh, I used to do her work. Um, but there's like a couple decades between us almost. Uh, so we just grew up in kind of different generational, uh, uh, there's a generational gap between the, you know, a group of us, my, myself, my older sisters and my younger sisters. Um, so when they were growing up, I was already gone to college and grad school. And I think I was at this time on active duty when she was, uh, and still in school and, and demonstrating. But anyway, uh, she was going back and forth about what she really felt and what needed to be expressed because sometimes there's a thin line with anger and rage and, and when these things come up. So out of that, we, we were talking on my drive to wherever I was going and we, um, and we drafted the piece called Still Chasing the Revolution, which um, some excerpts were taken from the written uh, poem called This, and This is a Love Poem by Nikki Giovanni. And um, a large part of, of that work or that time together, when we reflect on it now, I don't even like reading it <laughs> um, because my thought process from that time to now is so much, it's probably is the same, but now I really don't care. Um, and back then I feel like when I wrote it, um, I cared about what people might say or think. And it almost sounds like it's written by a victim. What are your thoughts when you reflect back on that, that speech? And writing it and what yeah, it was kind of like asking people to care. I don't know instead of taking it into our own hands, right? Which I feel is what we should do. Okay. Well, I'm gonna uh, reflect on what I wanted that piece to say, and then we'll get into it a little bit if that's all right. That works. So originally we were writing, and and the piece essentially, in short, was talking about how things need to be different, or how we need to act differently because of in light of the situations that were going on. At the time, it was supposed to be a powerful, meaningful, and passionate, whatever you want to call it, call to action. Um, and the intent was to highlight the urgency to address the systemic issues of race or bias and violence that disproportionately impacts black lives. The message was to emphasize the need to the need for concrete actions beyond waiting for compassion or mere words to bring about meaningful change. We hope that it acknowledged the historical struggles and the weight 
of marginalized experiences while urging for a collective or revolutionary approach to action. And in that piece, the words of Nikki Giovanni were, we must heed the call to action with acts of responsibility, with acts of bravery, with acts of commitment to change. This quote underscored the importance of taking responsibility, being courageous, and committing ourselves to creating a society where Black lives are truly valued and protected. Sis, in your view, this call to action, was it a collective call for everyone, all people, or was it specific? Um, it could be for all people. At the time, yes, it was for all people. What do you believe? At the time, it was for all people? Yes. It was for everyone. What, who was it for now? What, well, who would you say it's for now? Uh, black people as a whole, we can't keep asking the same thing. Like, it's been over 400 years, and we can't keep, at, like, peacefully asking to not be murdered. Okay. Now like, the man. Okay, so this is a portion. Let me just preface some things before we move <laughs> on. <laughs> this is where we kind of... Um, dance or uh, proceed with caution um, because we both know in, in, in our personal lives what, how we view things. Mm-hmm. And of course we have to be appropriate and not have the FBI mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, tap us and things like that. But one thing, for instance, I, um, just for you, those who are listening, I've always believed that my family knows that if for some reason um, I were to be a victim of a hate crime and I were no longer here, I wouldn't want to protest. I wouldn't want a t-shirt. I wouldn't want my life to have made a policy or a law. Um, this might shock some people, but I would want some shit to burn. Now, I don't condone violence, but I do believe in protecting and preserving our physical bodies as well as our emotional state. And when I say... I want my family to know that uh, things should radically change. Um, Don't march for me. I mean, uh, we need to organize, or I would hope that you all would have some form of civil disobedience. Like, I definitely believe in civil disobedience, and I wholeheartedly believe in nonviolent resistance. I would want some... Burn everything. Dismantling of some system Mm -hmm. that would really wake or shake things up because it's only right because for me just for me personally i've never wanted to live my life to say oh philip exemplified this or philip did that or his life meant this i want to live a life that is solely for me living basically i just want to enjoy the fullness of life i don't want my life or death to mean some big thing or some big change because i don't think we should have to have that anymore I don't think it should take um, death or pain or the understanding or the plight of a certain group or population for things to change. I just want to live and be happy. I just want to be free. I just wanted to live. And if I am not living for some reason, if that is cut short because of someone's bias or um, immediate reaction to just me walking down the street and being deemed, oh, they think they're afraid of their life. So now I, my, and mine has to end burn it all up <laughs> for me because I, I don't you. do that for you. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so that may, you know, so again, we are, some of these views might be out there, but please just please take it in um, the understanding that this is outside of my clinical perspective. 
and I'm having a conversation with my sister, right? So you believe that if before when we were writing this, when we drafted this and you gave that speech, it was for everybody. It was collective. Yes. And now I think you quoted uh, Tupac. You said, we've been asking for too long. We can't ask people to not keep murdering us, right? So I vibe with that. I vibe with that. Well, it's commonly believed that to bring about change, it is crucial to challenge and dismantle systems of oppression, advocate for justice, and actively work towards creating inclusive environments that value and respect the dignity of all individuals. By engaging in acts of resistance, education, advocacy, and collective action, we can strive for a future where Black lives are no longer subject to violence or discrimination due to being seen as a threat. Now, Education, advocacy, collective action, I think we do that. Those are the demonstrations. That's the teaching. That's um, talking about implicit biases, you know, DIE, all of that good stuff. Resistance, I think we have not done in a quite some time. Now, not resistance to be like, you know, troublesome. Good trouble is, is something. But do you think, well, you used to protest. Let's just put that out there. You were pretty active. You went to George Floyd's funeral. You spoke at a lot sure of did. events. You held you. I At some point, at one point, I was just like, my sister has to stop doing this because I either have to start hiring security or mm-hmm. um, making sure that I'm home when she does these things because people were being driven over at the protest you were, you were at. Yeah, there was, there was in Aurora and, and being shot. And it was publicly known that you were organizing these things Mm -hmm. like you were one of the you were on the front page of a newspaper right so i was just like okay i get what she's doing but she's bringing harm to herself and internally i was just like this isn't a resistance but now you aren't as active in demonstrations and i think with time a couple years or a few years you have started to see the difference maybe between a demonstration or a protest and what would be deemed re- uh, resistance? Yes. Can you explain more? Like now you'll never catch me at a protest. I will never be out on them streets again. Oh, wow. Okay. Never ever again. Okay. After the last few years. Um, just, it's not, I don't feel it's getting this anywhere. Um, I feel like repeating the same thing. They'll change the BS law and say, okay, here, have this. And next year or next month will be another issue. Why do you think your old way or the traditional way of protesting may have been effective. Well, first off, before you answer that, I thought it was because quite honestly, if you didn't have that demonstration to make that speech, I don't know if it would have brought a whole lot of light. So these things bring awareness, right? In in my view, it brings education, it brings the advocacy, and it brings a call to action. And the call to action then specifically with um, young Elijah, our, our brother, Elijah. Because it was successful. It was successful. It was. In it was. Um, so it was very successful. But you won't be in the streets again because you don't think it's the same. So, so walk me through Because that. that's like one in how many? Okay. Like that's not common. We don't always see like the lady who killed D- Devante in Minnesota is now out free. And that was what, two years? Mm-hmm. So stuff like that. It's always seen. It, and look at how many protests we had for him. Look how many... Um, so, so what I think is happening for me, the way I view it differently is like, it was easy for, not easy, but there was a difference in resistance in the 60s, 50s, 40s, because there were actual laws that we were challenging. We would go into um, lunch counters and sit down when it was illegal. We would sit on buses where we weren't supposed to sit. So there were things that we were actively doing to resist, to say that this is different. 
Now, I believe I see in my personal view, um, there is a difference because we are specifically intentionally resisting a form or thing that has happened, a systemic policy or societal view or act or, or a law that's set in place. We are intentionally going against, or these, these demonstrations have not been intentionally going against um, in much uh, that's currently standing that needs to be dismantled because now it's brought in home almost this. I don't know. That's a weird way to phrase it, but now it's simply the phrase I was in fear for my life. And that is enough, right? Can we go on to, I want to add on the last. Add on, go ahead. Where, uh-huh. where you said um, like act of resistance, like for example, when we were doing the protests, uh, the mayor of Denver like had a curfew in place. I think it was like 6 p.m., 7 p.m. And act of resistance would have been still protesting Stay and they didn't, no one did. Okay. So you only want to protest when they give you the okay to protest. But you understand that that still, again, was my fear that it might put your body in, in danger because then what happens, we're picking up the police things or we're being arrested, all of those things. But to your point, much like the 60s, 70s, 50s, 40s, when you're arresting thousands of people. Yeah. Who, in it's one right. cell, how many in people the, are in one the, cell? Exactly. That. You're yeah. overflowing mm-hmm. the cells in the South, and if you were to overflow in, the, in that, in the, I, you're right, then I guess there's some more policy would be put in place, or something mm-hmm. would have to happen. So th- th- I get you on that. So there has to be an active resistance. But again, so I think it may be a bit more trickier, which is why I may still protest, I may still be out in the streets, but it depends on what exactly um, the resistance is as a part of the demonstration. Um, because now, quite literally, it, it's just a few words. Um, I was in threat for my life. So meaning we have to figure out a way to dismantle stand your ground laws. Or this is controversial. You know, I might lose some people from listening or use the same law that's used against us. Now, I'm not saying do anything or cause harm to anybody. Let me just say that. But I know as a black person and I can speak speak. Um, personally, and then I'll give you some research behind it too. I know that sometimes walking into a room, walking down the street, going into a grocery store and wanting to conserve a bag for energy, right? (laughs) To be a good steward of the earth, I'm not going to put my stuff in a bag and I'm just going to pay for my items and walk towards the exit. That's for some people can can be really anxiety provoking. Why? Because as a black man, you're supposed to have your receipt in hand and ready for somebody to see. You're supposed to have that grocery bag and look like you are have bought something. I remember specifically, I was in Kansas, I believe. Yes, Kansas, with another soldier. I'm the commander of a unit, wearing uniform. And um, we're walking, oh no, no, excuse me, we're not in uniform. We're in civilian clothes. We're walking, me and myself, a soldier, a white soldier, walking towards the door. We both bought some items at Walmart because we forgot them for drill the next day. And... Um, he does not get spoken to, but I get stopped and am asked for my receipt. And it takes a long time for me to get through the door. And um, there's no apology that basically throw my receipt back at me. Like I, I was an inconvenience to them for because they thought that I was stealing something. And I get to the unit and we meet with everyone um, that morning. And um, uh, I'm just in a bad mood. And someone asked and I explained to them what happened or not my, myself. I think the soldier who was with me explained what happened. And then another, another soldier says, well, were you in uniform? And I looked and I was just like, the uniform of my skin? Like, what do you mean? Am I, so it would be different if I had my military uniform on, then it, then I'd have some right or some, some, 
some understanding of my existence and my reasoning for being at the store. And because I'm a black person in a uniform, that makes me different from a black person who's just wearing a t-shirt and shorts and some running sneakers, right? So that kind of anxiety that people, that I'm, I live with, let me not generalize, that I used to live with, but I don't quite live with anymore because I'm a diff in a different station in life and I really just don't care. And there are things that I can do so that I think that would help me to protect myself if the, if the time is necessary. Um, so those things can be pretty heavy. And, and I want to point out five things that deal with, with microaggressions, internalized ra racism, the, these things we call uh, oppression that people may not realize, is that according to, you know, Williams in tw 2008, Smart and Richard in 2019, these are, these are studies that, and I'm citing that you can look them up, Racial discriminatory experiences can lead to symptoms of PTSD among marginalized racial groups. Persistent exposure to racial bias can create a sense of threat, hypervigilance, and intrusive thoughts, which are common symptoms of PTSD. Internalized racism can lead to feelings of inferiority and psychological distress. Racial bias can influence the formation of racial and ethnic identity. Individuals may experience identity conflicts, struggle with questionings of belonging, and face challenges in reconciling their cultural heritage with societal expectations. This process can result in psychological distress and confusion. Experiencing racial bias can strain interpersonal relationships and social support networks. It can lead to feelings of isolation, mistrust, and difficulties in building and maintaining healthy relationships, which in turn can impact mental health. Do you believe in any of that? Do you see that at all? All the time. It, same people my age. It, I, I think so too. Young folks, definitely. I always go to these, uh, we call them CEUs or trainings, where we go and we get you know training on this thing or this technique or this. Or, and at the end of it, usually at the end, they always wait till the end. They say, oh, be inclusive. Ask someone about their culture. Understand that society might be challenging their belief. They might have a different belief from you because of their culture or their ethnic city. And it's important to recognize that and teach yourself about it. And then they move on, right? And I always challenge that. And I always, always, always raise my hand or, or put in a comment. Well, what if I'm a therapist and I'm seeing a black woman for depression and anxiety? And we process things, we talk about coping skills, we talk about behavior modification, we talk about um, understanding the root and going back to where it first started and concept of self. And this woman is now, her scores have changed, she's, she's um, feeling a lot better, but then she's turning around and going back into a society or into a room where she's supposed to hit, sit at the head of the table. And she doesn't get the same respect that a white man would if he was sitting at this, that head of the table. Or she sees in magazines the picturesque beauty, of uh, American standard for beauty. Or all of these things that tell her that she's only going to make 70 cents on the dollar of a white person. Or that she isn't good enough. And the world is steadily saying that. And then she sees that her young brother got shot down for knocking on the wrong door. Or the group of kids who were walking past the driveway get shot. Or going home. Someone gets mauled or attacked or accosted because of just being in a certain place. All of these things are going to cause depression again. How does this technique or this therapy or protocol or whatever address the environmental factors that impede a person of color's ability to maintain mental wellness? And they always shut me up and then, you know, move on. 
But that's how I see it, right? A lot of people don't recognize that the things that are happening not only harm our physical body, but our mental wellness as well. And if I'm understanding you, you've kind of joined my team. Mm-hmm. You think more needs to be done yes. than just demonstrating. What else needs to be done? A more harder form of resistance, like we talked about earlier. Like you can't, we, it's not going to be a peaceful, you can't peacefully start a revolution. Disrupt the peace is what you're thinking. Absolutely. Make them uncomfortable. Make them uncomfortable. But aren't they already uncomfortable? I mean, they're not down uncomfortable the street. enough. <laughs> right. You you listened to Just Being, my first podcast for season one. Yes, I did. Those white people were uncomfortable because I was just running down the street mm-hmm. and then entering my building. So they're already uncomfortable. True. So what um, What do you mean by Maybe fearful. Maybe that's not the word. Fearful. Like, th- they should think twice about hurting a black person, following a black person, calling the police on them for no reason, make them think twice. So demonstrations or protesting no longer do that? No, to me. For you. Okay. What are they going to do? Find another route to go to work if you if you protest in the street? Like, I don't feel like it. It inconveniences them enough. So oppression needs to be inconvenienced. Yes. Okay, I like it. I like. Now you said a little earlier that uh, it's especially harder when it comes to the impact of racism or implicit biases on uh, mental health. That is especially difficult for your generation. Yes. Tell me more. Wearing our clothes a certain way, we have to be mindful of that, or having our hoodie up, or wearing dark colors that can be seen as a threat to other people for whatever reason. But we always have to keep that in mind uh, before we leave our house every day. And, and I don't feel like that's fair. We don't get to express ourselves the way we need to. So it sounds like you live in a constant state of anxiety. Yeah, and that's, that'll take a toll on anyone's mental health. What I'm wearing, what I'm doing, how I'm perceived. How I'm perceived. So for your generation, it might be difficult because of there's no f- safe form of expression, self-expression. Correct. Um, like walking at night or walking like in a park or something with a lot of people, even then, even it doesn't matter how many people are around, like you still have that in the back of your head. If I put my hoodie up, now I'm seen as a thug or someone who's going to steal or up to no good because I'm cold or it's raining. I'm just putting my hoodie up. Hmm. Okay. I can see that. I feel that. I know that, obviously. This is another obvious thing, but I feel like we just need to discuss it because, you know, there's other things we want to discuss, but we can't air that. Yes. <laughs> uh, stay in your ground. You obviously believe it's racist. It's very racist. It's an easy way. That's genocide, a legal way of genocide, I feel like. I bet if black people started using it as much as white people did, they would get rid of that law very quickly. Oh, okay. What What are some... Give me three forms of resistance that that you think might might help to make a change Uh, the first one would be if especially black men between the ages of 18 and 25 were uh, legal firearm owners i feel like that would change the game a bit okay so like you think that black people all black people but particularly especially them yeah 18 should be registered gun owners or if it's oh have a gun license yes okay that's pretty okay okay what else and then I would say if we all got life insurance policies, make them a little bit more uncomfortable with killing us for no reason. Ouch. Okay, but I I get the I get the mm-hmm. concept, but I get the implicate. Okay, yeah. What what's what else do you think? 
As for the last point, I would say, as far as like the stand your ground laws and any other law like that, um, if we stop supporting companies like the Walton Foundation, the Koch brothers, who support those who put these laws into place, if we if we're mindful of where we spend our our black dollars, that can put a, a, lead to a change as well. I feel. Okay. From the the mouth of a different generation, we can obviously go on and on uh, with this conversation, but I think this is a good point to leave. And of course, you can always come back. Mm-hmm. Would you mind? reading what we initially wrote. I know we kind of see it differently now and um, we're t- at two different places, but just for those those listening, would you mind leaving us with that? Yes. So when we wrote this, uh, it had just come out that Brian, the one of the officers who murdered Brianna Taylor was charged, but not for killing her, only for shooting into the the, the wall. Right. So, so right. no one was really held up. Yes, something, or something like that. Like that. But not for her actual so, murder. So this is written at that time. Uh, at that time. So I think the day after. The day after is when you gave the speech. Yes. Oh, okay. So so for those of you listening for context, this this was the message that was delivered the, the day after that came out from the attorney general in Kentucky. So today we have been shown that in America, police have the right to invade our homes and take innocent life while sleeping. They have the right to be protected by the justice system and the right to execute black people at will so long as there is an imaginary threat. So what rights are we really left with? We were also told today by the Kentucky Attorney General that not everyone will be satisfied with this verdict. Well, unfortunately, Daniel Cameron, human life cannot be measured by any level of another person's satisfaction, and we cannot continue to be murdered without justice. We are not empty vessels that can be thrown away and subjected to America's level of tolerance for Black life. It's one thing to say it, but another to show it. And again, today we have been shown just how little black lives really mean to this country. This time must be different. In the words of Nikki Giovanni, we must heed the call to action with acts of responsibility, with acts of bravery, with acts of commitment to change. And with the collective and centralized revolutionary act in the interest of black lives to the extent that these calls for action can no longer be put into words, leaving those holding onto the historical measures of black lives speechless. This time must be different. We're calling out to anyone who does indeed believe that there can be, should be, and must be a change. This time we must act differently. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The After Session with Philip Lewis. I hope this time has been beneficial to you in some way. If you like some of the topics discussed, you can visit lewiscounseling.org and click on The After Session. Or follow me on Instagram at the after session underscore. If you are interested in starting your therapeutic process or engaging in a protocol or technique referenced, please make sure you contact your mental health or medical provider. This podcast has been produced by Logan Wesley. You can follow Logan at onelawmusic.com or on Instagram at the number one L-A-W underscore music. Thanks for listening. Be good to yourself.